Welcome to this forum event on capitalism. My name is Peter Dennis and I teach in the philosophy department here at LSE. For those of you who don't know, the forum is a charitable organisation and we rely on the generosity of our donors. So if you would like to make a donation, you can go to our Just Giving page and you can find details uh, on the forum's website. Uh, if you'd like to tweet about tonight's event, feel free to do so. Uh, we recommend the hashtag LSEFEP. Now, tonight's lecture is a special event for us. It's a memorial lecture for Ralph Oppenheimer, who was one of the forum's early trustees. So before I introduce our speaker for the evening, I'm going to hand over to Ralph's nephew, David Edmonds, who's going to say a few words about Ralph. In, 19, in 2010, my uncle Ralph celebrated his 70th birthday. The question arose as to what to get him. He had enough socks and ties and cufflinks, and in any case had not much interest in socks and ties and cufflinks. So instead, the extended family bought him an unusual gift, six private one-to-one tutorials with leading UK philosophers on such topics as Wittgenstein, John Rawls, the Socratic method, and the philosophy of art. One was kindly given by Joe. For most people, having to spend six hours debating abstruse issues in philosophy would be considered more punishment than present, more hardship than pleasure, but not Ralph. Ralph spent much of his life as a businessman, a steel trader. But he was a strong supporter of the forum here at the LSE, and he was passionate about ideas. That made him unusual in the world of steel. (laughs) He studied PPE in Oxford, then did postgraduate work in economics at the LSE. One of his close friends was Jerry Cohen, the renowned Marxist political theorist, and Joe's supervisor, I think. When they moved from Oxford to London, Ralph and Jerry shared an apartment for two years. Ralph operated in the capitalist world, but towards the end of his life, when he had already been diagnosed with cancer, he delivered a series of lectures on the contradictions of capitalism at the University of the Third Age, grappling with some of the issues that preoccupied Jerry, inequality, liberty, taxation, the role of the state. Before he finalised the lectures, I would meet with Ralph and my uncle and aunt, Mike and Enos, to discuss the content. It turned out that this capitalist was a bit of a lefty. (laughs) Certainly he had very sensitive moral antennae, was alert to injustice, and like Marx, felt that capitalism contained the seeds of its own destruction. Ralph died just over a year ago. He's still missed by his whole extended family. His wife, Helen and his two children, Sarah and Russell, are in the audience tonight. We're all very grateful to Joe for giving the Ralph Oppenheimer Memorial Lecture. Given Ralph's interest in philosophy and economics, the topic could hardly be more fitting.
Well, it's a great privilege to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Jonathan Wolfe. He is Blavatnik Professor in Philosophy uh, at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Professor Wolfe has held positions at Harvard University and at UCL, and he's known for his work in political philosophy, particularly on inequality, and also philosophy of public policy. And he's been a member, uh, or has been a member, of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. He's also known uh, outside philosophy, outside academia, for his extremely widely read uh, introduction to political philosophy. But tonight he's going to speak on a subject which is uh, very close to Ralph's interests, capitalism. Professor Wolfe. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the forum and uh, Ralph's family for this great honour of giving this talk. And I'm just trying to move this bit of wood here, which I have done. Uh, it's really an amazing turnout. Capitalism appears never to have been so popular uh, <laughs> as it is tonight. And so uh, I hope I have things to say to you that will be of interest. The topic obviously was dear to Ralph's heart. He delivered the lectures. The lectures are available on a website called ralphslectures.com. And I did take the opportunity of looking through them before uh, preparing this talk. And they're extremely interesting, very learned, and wide-ranging. So we should start with the question, what is capitalism? And I'm going to start with Marx's account of this. Uh, Some people think Marx coined the phrase capitalism. He probably didn't, but he was probably the first person to give it systematic attention as a particular type of economic form. And Marx introduces it in Das Kapital and in other works in a very interesting way. So he begins by thinking about very primitive forms of economy. So the most primitive form, I suppose, would be one where people just make the things they consume for themselves... But we move on, and we move to a point where there's barter and exchange. So the first form of more elaborate economy is one where people make goods, make commodities, and they exchange them for other commodities. Marx thinks of as a commodity as something that is made in order to be exchanged. So exchange is a really critical notion here, that... uh, Initially, people would have just sold their surplus, but there comes a time when people specialize. They produce one good in order to exchange it for another. That, Marx thinks, is a real nuisance because you have to find someone who has exactly the same preferences opposed to yours to carry out the barter. And so, sort of fairy story economics, money develops as a universal medium of exchange. And for Marx, it was important that money was a commodity that had value itself. It wasn't invented, but gold, for example, takes on the form of that commodity because it doesn't spoil, it's easily divisible, and so on. People want it in its own right. Uh, Though Marx said that the first people to develop money were nomads, and that money was camels. Uh, It had the particular advantage of being self-transporting and fitted... (laughs) the nomadic way of life, but uh, camels have a certain impracticability in other contexts, and so we develop gold and other rare metals and so on to take on that role. And so human beings developed what Marx 
called the CMC cycle. You start with a commodity, you sell it for money, and with that money you buy the commodities you want. So perhaps you make shoes, you sell the shoes for money, and with that money you buy the other things you need to survive. That is not capitalism, as far as Marx is concerned. It's a form of exchange economy, but it's not capitalism. Capitalism begins when the cycle begins with money rather than the commodity. Capitalism begins when people start with money, they transform that money into commodities, and then they sell those commodities for more money than they started with. And the initial money advanced is called capital. So you start with your capital, you buy some goods, you sell those goods for a profit. So Marx said the first form of capitalism was merchant capital, merchant capitalism, where traders bought goods where they were cheap and sold them where they were more expensive. They would move around, merchants had to be very mobile and move from marketplace to marketplace. That was the beginnings of capitalism, but of course it was only the very beginnings because the next stage was the main part of capitalism, what Marx was most interested in, industrial capitalism. And industrial capitalism requires buying commodities or hiring them and transforming them into different commodities which you then sell at a profit. Now this can be done on a small scale, but it develops into a large scale under some conditions. Those conditions are where you can employ workers who, on this view, are a commodity like any other commodity. So in the capitalism Marx was thinking about, the capitalist starts off with capital, buys raw materials, spaces, hires workers, and makes a profit by using those materials to produce another commodity which is sold uh, after generating surplus value from the exploitation of the worker. So it's a key part of Marx's analysis of the more complex forms of capitalism that a profit is generated from the exploitation of the worker. It is true that individual traders can make a profit. That's unmysterious. You buy cheap and sell more expensive. But the industrial capitalist is a bit more of a puzzle. Why is it that capitalism is profitable? Marx thought no economist in the history of the world had solved this problem. Before Marx, you get him in typical Marxist fashion, page after page, examining other people's pretended solutions, which apparently don't work very well. And Marx has a solution. The capitalist finds a commodity that can be hired for less than the value that that commodity produces, and that is the worker. Now, the reply to Marx, made by many economists, is that if the worker can create profit just by working, why does a worker sell labor to the capitalist? Why doesn't the worker just keep the profit to themselves? And Marx's answer is that capitalism requires the worker to be free in a double sense, he says. What is this double sense? Well, the worker has to be free from feudal ties and free from independent access to the means of production, i.e., the worker must be propertyless in order for the worker to be prepared to sell their labor to the capitalist. And this, for Marx, is the main idea of capitalism. It is a system where some people have access to capital, access to property, access to raw material. They use that to hire workers at the minimum wage they can manage. 
the workers produce more profit in the day than they cost in wages, and thereby the capitalist makes a profit. And that is industrial capital. And that is the MCM cycle. So we have the CMC cycle, which is where you start with commodities, sell them, get more money. The MCM cycle is you start with money, you get commodities, transform them, sell them for more, and make profit. And then, Marx says, there's also the very cunning MM cycle that does without the commodity. This is banking, where you advance money and get more money back. And Marx's analysis of banking is actually quite interesting for us because I think many people have a type of belief that money somehow multiplies in value on its own. That if you, it's like planting a tree. You put it at a bank and it just gets bigger. That's what money does. Money grows in a bank. Okay. But, of course, Marx says that is ridiculous. Money doesn't grow. How do banks make profit? By lending to capitalists who need the capital in order to make a profit. So your interest in the bank, according to Marx, is just a share in capitalist profits. It's a deduction from the industrialist who is making a profit, and it's a type of redistribution. So there's no free money in the economy. All money, including interest on your savings, ultimately comes from the exploitation of workers. Although capitalism, according to Marx, is very good at mystifying its nature, that you don't understand really what is going on if you're just the ordinary person under capitalism. So what is wrong with capitalism? Well, um, I'm not going to dwell on this. I suspect that many people have their own ideas about what is wrong with capitalism. The Marxist criticisms are well known. I've mentioned exploitation. It's a realm of alienation. Most people are not fulfilled in their work. They find it forced labor. It generates inequality and poverty. And in one of my favorite quotes from Marx, under capitalism, we become, Marx says, playthings of alien forces. Now, what he means by this is our world becomes structured by forces beyond our control. That if you're a propertyless individual, you have no choice either but, no, but to take a job at a minimum wage or starve, certainly in the capitalism of Marx's time. If you're a capitalist... You might think you have choice, but you might have less choice than you think. So one fantastic example of this from Capital Volume 1 concerns the coffee, sorry, the coffee, the cotton manufacturers in the north of England who were working their workers an incredible number of hours a week. And these workers included young children who were three or four years old because the way the mills were set up, um, they needed young children to climb through the ventilation shafts to clean them out. And so there were young children, barely beyond infancy, who were working in the mills, cleaning out the cotton mills, uh, the ventilation shafts, and the mills could not run without that job being done. Uh, The children employed this way had a life expectancy of just a few years because the cotton fibers got into their lungs. And they were working something like 80 hours a week. Now, the cotton manufacturers wanted to reduce the working day. So why didn't they just reduce the working day? Well, they felt they couldn't. Because if the big cotton manufacturers had reduced the working day, they felt they would have lost out to the smaller manufacturers who didn't reduce the working day. So they felt forced by the system that they lived in to exploit the workers as ruthlessly as everyone else, because otherwise they would lose money and ultimately go out of business. 
So the cotton manufacturers had to lobby for a law to force them to reduce the working day in order to get that done. So I think that's a really important lesson about how everyone, according to Marx, is just trapped into the structures of capitalism. You have a degree of control, but much less than you think. It's also heartening that the manufacturers wanted to reduce the working day, although they didn't want to eliminate child labour at that time. Okay, so we're very familiar with this type of criticism of capitalism, and particularly if we know Marx's writings, we know those criticisms. What tends to get buried a bit is Marx at the same time was a tremendous admirer of capitalism. That um, he thought that capitalism was essential in human development to bring productive powers up to a level that would make communism possible. So this was one of the differences between Marx and the utopian socialists. Marx thought there was a natural historical progression that we had to go through, and we have to go through capitalism, quite an advanced form of capitalism, in order to be able to have the level of productivity that made communism possible. And it's absolutely true that capitalism was going through an incredible period of development at the time Marx was writing. So Marx's early writings date from about 1842, 1843, the Communist Manifesto, 1848, and Das Kapital, 1867. And in the Communist Manifesto, Marx um, describes not in detail, but sort of hints at the incredible progress that capitalism has made just in the last few years while he was writing. And um, it was probably an unprecedented stage, at least in terms of material progress, in that Euston Station. So here's a question. Anyone know when Euston Station opened? 1837. Uh, Paddington, 1838. King's Cross, 1852, after the Communist Manifesto. St. Pancras, 1868, round about the same time as Capital, Volume 1. The first steamship ocean liner, uh, crossing the Atlantic was also round about 1838. So in Marx's memory, we had moved from a society where people were moving around by horse and cart to a society where people were getting trains from one end of England to the other, when people were getting on steamships that had cut journey time down by a quarter. So you know, we think we've seen a lot by the internet, but uh, thinking about the difference between not having the railway and the railway must have been an incredible thing to behold. And so Marx felt that you know, capitalism was unleashing a type of wealth that had hitherto been completely unknown. But at the same time, it was frightening because no one was in charge of capitalism. Marx talks about the anarchy of production. Everyone is making their own decisions. This leads from time to time to great progress, but at the same time it leads to crashes, economic crashes. There is a boom-bust cycle of capitalism. Engels brought this to Marx's attention very early on. Um, and it's very, very interesting to think about this in relation to contemporary economics. And that every now and again we hear a politician say that we've got beyond boom and bust, and history comes round again. And what is so fascinating is that politicians only believe in the economic cycle when they're at the bottom of it. Okay? So when we're at the top, we've got sustainable permanent growth. When we're at the bottom, don't worry, the cycle will get us out. 
And so Engels brought the, in 1842, brought the economic cycle to Marx's attention. Why do we have an economic cycle? It's part of the natural function of capitalism on Marx's analysis, but it is absurd. Marx says that previous centuries would not have understood how we can have an economic crash, because what is an economic crash? It's essentially a, a crisis of overproduction, that we're producing goods that can't be sold. How can that be a crisis? That sounds like abundance, producing things that can't be sold. So what we have in an economic crisis is a crisis that always marks crises of overproduction. And that's because the way capitalism works, the forces work, takes purchasing power away from the workers at a particular time, and then that leads to a downward spiral, and the economy has to right itself and then go back up again, but it will come back down again. <coughs> capitalism is anarchic, and it is irrational and wasteful. So in a speech in 1845 uh, to the steelworkers in Germany, uh, Engels talks in great detail about the wastefulness of capitalism. And one of his targets was the swindling middleman, as he called it. And he talks about a cotton bale uh, being loaded in America, coming to Liverpool, going maybe to another European city, coming back to England, eventually finding its way to Germany after having been loaded and unloaded many times. And Engels says... How many speculating, swindling, superfluous middlemen have now forced themselves in between the producer and the consumer? So discussing this bale of cotton, he says uh, he attacked the exporters, commission agents, forwarding agents, wholesalers and retailers who actually contribute nothing to the commodity itself. So Engel's view is that you know, capitalism is incredibly irrational. These things are produced over here, they're consumed over here. In between, there are these swindling middlemen who are making money, they're selling, uh, but they're adding nothing real to the economy. Now, if Ralph had been around, I think he might have had a few words with Engels on this point. Um, because it was fascinating to me, after having known this passage for so long, going back to read Friedman and Hayek, who regard the middlemen as the sort of heroes of the economy. Because what do the middlemen do? Well, they find goods that are oversupplied in one area, and they find places where they're undersupplied. That's how they make their money. They, t they take goods from where they're not wanted or needed to places where they are wanted or needed. And they often do that at great financial risk to themselves. So for Hayek and Friedman, Middlemen are the people that make the economy work. For Marx and Engels, they're swindling, blood-sucking parasites. And so I just think this is such a fantastic contrast of views on the same role in the economy. And you, know, you can see why both said what they were saying. For Hayek and Engels, of course, this is... The, sorry, Hayek and Friedman, this is the miracle, or one of the miracles of coordination. When we start to think about capitalism, it has other miracles too. So my first economics lesson, very short, just a few seconds, um, was from my primary school teacher when I was about 10 years old, who for some reason that I cannot now recall, said to the class, you know, when you go to the 
news agent and you exchange your shilling for a Mars bar or whatever it was, that's because the shopkeeper would rather have your shilling than the Mars bar and you would rather have the Mars bar than your shilling. (laughs) Now, being an argumentative kind of child, I did spend quite a long time trying to work out how I could poke holes in this. But actually, I, I couldn't. That it was actually rather extraordinary because here we have a situation in life where two people are made better off and no one is made worse off. And it goes against a type of view that suggests that you can only make a profit if someone else makes a loss. That may be true in financial terms, but it's certainly not true in utility terms because both of these parties are better off as a result of the transaction. And this is, I suppose, this is a miracle of exchange rather than capitalism. But when we look a bit further at this, we see, for example, Adam Smith's famous argument that what capitalism does, or at least trading for profit does, is allow a level of sort of unintended coordination and improvement of quality of goods and reduction of prices. So many of you will know Adam Smith's famous words on this. Uh, I was very pleased to see them in Ralph's lectures or a version of them in Ralph's lectures. That it's not from the benevolence of the butcher that you get your meat or you get a good cut of meat. Rather, the butcher is looking purely to his own self-interest in giving you a good cut of meat. Why is that? Well, if it's a really bad cut of meat, you won't be there to buy again. If it's a moderately bad cut of meat, you'll tell other people, and again, you won't go back again. So the butcher needs to give you a good deal to get your custom back. And if there's another butcher in town, you can easily take your custom elsewhere. So one of the things we often tend to forget is capitalism is of tremendous benefit to consumers. As a consumer, we find that capitalists are typically in competition with each other and the only way in which they can get your custom is by giving you a good deal and that typically means bringing down prices and raising quality. Not always and I'll come to why not always in a moment but this is the famous Smithian argument for capitalism. What capitalism does is harness self-interest to the general good. The people are looking only to their own interest but in order to pursue their own interests, they have to give you a good deal. Okay, so is that right or wrong? It certainly sounds very plausible, and in the case of the butcher, it sounds extremely plausible. Question is, how far does it generalize? And I think what we need to do at this point is to realize there are different roles in the economy. And so I've talked about the consumer, we have the business owner, the butcher in this case, also I've mentioned the worker. Those are three distinct roles in the economy, the business owner, the worker, and the consumer. Marx was primarily concerned about the business owner and the worker, didn't talk very much about the consumer. Defenders of capitalism are much more interested in us as consumers, I think, than they are as producers and maybe as business owners. Now, the central problem in capitalism from the point of view of the consumer is what is known in semi-technical economics, barely technical economics, as the asymmetry of knowledge. That is, when you're dealing with someone, when you're buying something from someone, 
Typically, you as the purchaser know much less about it than the person who's selling it. And um, anyone who has sold a car or a house or indeed bought a car or a house will know this, that you are selling something and probably hiding some of the things about it or at least not bringing it to the other person's attention. You might feel a bit guilty and soiled about it, but you just say, this is capitalism. This is what you do. (coughs) Buyer beware. That is the great slogan of capitalism. Buyer beware that you have no duty to make sure that you tell everyone. Okay? So there's an asymmetry of knowledge that you as a seller know a lot. The butcher knows a lot about that cut of meat. The purchaser just sees it for a second. And so the, the purchaser suffers from not knowing very much about the thing they're buying. Now, Smith's argument um, is really a type of almost evolutionary argument or a Darwinian argument that says that there are circumstances in which the market overcomes this asymmetry of knowledge. So if you're a regular purchaser, you will find out about the good. Once you start consuming the good, you'll find out about it. And if it's no good, you won't go back again. So where you have goods which are consumed fairly quickly and you're making repeat purchases, Adam Smith's argument that competition and capitalism drives up quality, drives down prices, works quite well. So areas where you make repeat purchases and have fairly instant consumption, the argument for capitalism is very strong. One of the problems that we've seen in recent decades is people who understand that argument and think it has much more general application than it does. So think about buying a pension scheme. Now, if you buy a pension scheme, you know pretty little about it. The person selling it knows quite a bit more. Or a subprime mortgage. Or a financial derivative. The person who has packaged it all together knows a lot about it. Go back to the pension scheme. You buy the pension scheme. When do you consume it? Maybe 30 years' time. So there's no time then for this type of evolutionary learning. There's no opportunity for the evolutionary learning that means that the person has to sell you a decent plan. By the time you realize it's a rotten plan, they're doing something else. They might be dead or they're in another business by then. So the butcher needs repeat business, therefore has to sell you something good. But financial services, they don't need repeat business from you because these are things you buy once. And maybe buying a university place could be a bit like this, maybe. You buy it once, and then they've got you. Right? Um, so what is interesting in these cases is the quality of the good is still in the hands of the person you bought it from even after they've got your money. So they have no incentive to make it good at that point. So this is a problem with the Smithian argument. What the Smithian argument does is say capitalism converts selfishness into the general good. And my suggestion is that is true under very limited circumstances where there's repeat purchasing, instant consumption, and evolutionary learning. Where those things don't hold, what's going to happen to selfishness? Suppose you're dealing with a selfish pension salesman. What is that salesperson going to sell you? Well, they're going to sell you whatever happens to maximize their commission if they're selfish. And that seems to be very unlikely to be the thing that is going to be in your best interests. So there are occasions where the structures of capitalism convert selfishness into the general good, and there are occasions where they convert selfishness into 
rip-off type of culture and exploitation of consumers. And one thing I think that was partly behind the recession was a failure to appreciate those different two cases and the belief that the butcher example just generalized across the whole economy, that greed is good, selfishness is good, and this was called the efficient market hypothesis, I believe. Okay, so we have um, some advantages of capitalism. We have some disadvantages of capitalism. But it's wrong to think capitalism is one thing. And here, amazingly enough, I was stimulated to think on this thought by reading a small article, an interview with that um, well-known theorist, Steve Bannon, who um, wrote, he delivered a speech to the Vatican in 2014, and then there was a question and answer after it. And there was something very interesting in this speech. I mean, there was a lot that was appalling, um, but there was something that was very interesting. So Steve Bannon distinguishes three different types of capitalism. The first one is what he calls crony capitalism. So crony capitalism, I probably don't even have to tell you what this means. A crony capitalism is where you have some people who are in charge of the system who bend the rules to favor them and their families and their close associates. So crony capitalism is where you have something that looks like a market, but it's not a free market. There are peop the people in power, as Bannon puts it, bend the rules to suit themselves. And indeed, in 2014, he said, the Republican establishment bends the rules to suit themselves, he said. Okay, so crony capitalism, he identifies this with, interestingly, China and Russia and Argentina, about which I know less. But you can think of some countries and some regimes whereby those in power enrich themselves through pseudo-capitalist mechanisms. Okay, so the problem with crony capitalism, if it isn't obvious, is that it concentrates wealth rather than it spreads wealth. So it concentrates wealth into a small number of, hand, of hands, increases inequality, doesn't reward hard work, but rewards a type of rent-seeking. That was the first form of capitalism, crony capitalism. The second form is what uh, Bannon calls Randian capitalism. So this is a less familiar term. It's named after the Russian-American novelist, thinker, Ayn Rand, who wrote about a political philosophy and moral philosophy she called objectivism. Um, what she is more famous for, though, is writing a book of essays well, more famous for it in this area, she wrote books like Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, which are interesting books, even if you may not agree with them in every detail, but they're, they're novels and The Fountainhead was made into quite an interesting film. Um, but she wrote a series of articles that were collected under the title The Virtue of Selfishness. So what does Randian capitalism believe in? So Randian capitalism believes that if we are all as selfish as possible, this will work out to the general good, but even if it doesn't, we still have a right to be as selfish as possible, roughly speaking. Um, so it's not a very clear message. Um, but, and Bannon says what's wrong with it is it, that it treats people as commodities, he says, which is a peculiar thing to say about it. But I think what it does is uh, have an over-individualized view that suggests that as a capitalist, your duty is to just to try to make as much money as you can, and then everything will be all right some sort of massive pre-established harmony, perhaps, that makes that right. 
Okay, so we've got crony capitalism, we've got Randian capitalism. What is next? Well, remember, uh, Bannon was speaking at the Vatican. Judeo-Christian capitalism (laughs) comes next. So what is this? Well, um, it's really values-based capitalism. And the idea is that the capitalists in this case are not just trying to feather their own nest and that of their families. They're not being as selfish as possible, but they are responsible human beings who have a set of values and they want to live by those values even in business. Okay? Because the crony capitalism and the Randian capitalism were really free of any type of values other than selfishness or support for your immediate family. And so Bannon has this idea that once upon a time, capitalism was influenced by the Judaic religion, the Christian religion, and that capitalists were basically decent people who did decent things. They looked after their workers, maybe built them accommodation. They were keen to give their consumers a good deal, treated workers perhaps as part of extended, very extended uh, community, and they were philanthropists and did a lot of good in the community. So Bannon seems to suggest that once upon a time, that was the golden age of of capitalism. Once upon a time, there was Judeo-Christian capitalism. This has degenerated. We've now got crony capitalism and Randian capitalism. And what we've got to do is go back to Judeo-Christian capitalism. Well, um, Bannon is clearly wrong that there was a historical progression of this sort. It's very likely that uh, all three were present at the same time, different individuals at the same time, even in the same companies at the same time. And when I was reading this about crony capitalism, I was reminded of work I did on railway safety. So railways are coming back in here. Um, One thing I learned about at primary school, maybe many of you did or saw on Blue Peter, was at the time of the invention of the motor car, there was a great concern about the safety of the car in this country. And initially, every car travelling along the road had to be preceded by someone waving a red flag. This was the Red Flag Act, and the cars would go down the road and someone would wave the red flag because cars were so dangerous that you had to make sure that they went very slowly and everyone was warned. Well, of course, what that does is take away all the advantage of a car because a car can't go any faster than walking speed. And one author pointed out that Germany and France did not feel the need to have the Red Flag Act. And so the German and French motor industry took off in a way it didn't in Britain. So why was this? Were we so safety conscious? Well, one author says the real story is that most of the members of parliament in the UK had railway bonds or had bought land where railways were expected. So therefore, they deliberately wanted to do everything they could to hold back the development of the motor car so that the the railways took hold. So I have no idea if this is true. Um, It was written by, this book was written by a law graduate from UCL, so impeccable impeccable credentials. Um, But it's very plausible. And you can think that, so this is really, you could not get a better example of crony capitalism than something like this. The capitalists had got their, bought their railway bonds. Probably they bought them before anyone, or bought the land. Probably they bought the land when only the MPs knew the railway was going there. So they bought up the land cheaply. They were 
MPs so they could pass the next act to get the railways through, and then they made sure there was no competition. And this is from, the, from 1865, almost the same year as Capital, Volume 1. So crony capitalism has been with us for a long time. But um, there is, I think, something to be said for the idea that a values-based capitalism seems rather different to the crony capitalism and the Randian capitalism that Bannon opposes, and I'll come back to that. So that is, you know, these are just some of the issues around the advantages and disadvantages of capitalism. But probably what most of you are here for, and not to hear about capitalism, actually, but to hear about the alternatives to capitalism. And you can see I'm leaving this rather late to talk about the alternatives to capitalism. So what are the alternatives to capitalism? Well, um, when I was preparing this lecture, I, I thought, I, I want to do something that I've been meaning to do for a few years, which is to go back to the Communist Manifesto and take a look at the ideas again in there, because many of you will know Marx didn't think it was possible to go directly from capitalism to communism, that we would not be ready as human beings to receive communism. And we had to go through an intermediate stage, which people later called socialism, although Marx just called it the lower stage of communism. And in the Communist Manifesto, there are ten numbered points which give you the lowest stage of communism, known as socialism. Now, so what are these? Well, some of them are sort of standard tough socialist measures. So the abolition of property, by which Marx didn't mean you have to give up your toothbrush, but what he meant was the abolition of capital, i.e. the abolition of property that can be used in production. Confiscation of the property of emigrants and rebels. So if people leave, they leave their property behind. Um, no right to inherit. Nationalization of communication and transport. Equal liability of all to work. And a state bank with a monopoly. So remember, this was from 1848. These were put on the table. And we have seen most of these at some points in history. And we see some of them in the Labour Manifesto as well. Uh, the nationalisation of transport. Well, nationalisation of the railways, although that was all the transport there was, really, when Marx was writing. So um, I don't know whether he would have thought private transport was another matter. Um, but you know, those are pretty tough socialist measures, as I said. But also in the Communist Manifesto are things that we just take for granted now. So progressive income tax, for example. So this was a radical socialist measure in 1848. Rather than having a flat tax, to have progressive tax. Free education for all is another hard left measure. Um, and then there are some oddities as well. So uh, Marx talks about improvement of the soil according to a national plan. Now, that may be a good policy, but it doesn't quite seem on the same level as the others. And cultivation of wasteland. So obviously he had something going on in his head about this. Um, but you know, he had some other ideas which are worth thinking about. So one thing I really like is that um, he says there should be abolition of, in, of child labor in its current form. Says. Um, so what is the form that will replace it? Well, he thinks that there should be a combination of education and industrial production. That is, you know, kids should be in school for part of the day 
and in the workplace for part of the day as well. And this is something, actually, I've always thought would not be a terrible idea for a lot of kids who are not getting a great amount of school out of school. You might think modern apprenticeship schemes are something like this, but they could probably start earlier in uh, children's lives than they do. So you know, that would be something to think about, though not for this election, probably. Um, and there are some other peculiarities, and one I have not got my head around, even though I've thought, been thinking about this for quite a long time. So Marx wanted to abolish the distinction between town and country and have a more equitable distribution of the population across the land, which is a very strange ambition. And maybe that was one in the... If there, if there had been a second edition of the Communist Manifesto, maybe that would have been taken out. But what do we have here? Well, we have a type of combination of you know, a very hard left agenda, abolition of property, confiscation of property of the rebels, but also standard progressive policy and some middle ground so nationalization policies. But it's not clearly a program that we could follow at this point, not in its entirety. What can we do? Well, other ideas from Marx and Engels. Now, it, it was, it's often noted with great frustration that Marx himself said very little about the nature of the future society. So a lot of people think this is a cop-out. I think Marx has a good reason for this because he didn't see himself as a prophet of the future society. He saw himself... He, so Jerry Cohen has emphasized the way in which Marx talked about being a midwife of the new society. So this is really interesting. that He thinks, and I'll come back to this, he thinks a new society is being born within capitalism as he was writing. And part of his job was to hasten its delivery. He wasn't inventing it. It was a real thing that was happening. So just as a midwife would be rather foolish if they made predictions about what the baby would be like, Marx would be rather foolish to make predictions about what communism would be like because it's a real movement in history, not, he says, the realization of an idea. However, there were some things said more by Engels and Marx about the nature of uh, communism. And again, remember that I mentioned the speech he gave in 1845 to the steel workers in Elberfeld in Germany. He put forward the idea of the planned economy there. And you can see absolutely see how the idea of the planned economy comes up. Because the problem with capitalism is the anarchy of production, the lack of coordination. Lack of coordination leads to wastefulness, it leads to superfluous middlemen, it leads to boom and bust, it leads to crises of overproduction. And when you read this stuff, it's a natural thought to think, if only we could get our act together, if only we could plan this all properly, we would get rid of all of this waste, there'd be so much more wealth that we could use properly, and we could spread among individuals. And when, Mark, when Engels is talking about this in 1845... He regards the planned economy as just a very obvious and rather trivial thing. So this is how you plan the economy. Engels says, we know what the average pe person wants. We know how many people there are. Therefore, we can plan the economy. Okay. Take the average person, multiply it by the number of people. That's what you've got to produce. Couldn't be easier. Okay. Well, um, it turns out that it wasn't quite as simple as that. And the attempts to develop the planned economy, as we know, ended in some sort of chaos. And when I was a student of Jerry Cohen's in 1983, a lot of people were in a rather depressed state about the future of socialism. The planned economy didn't seem to be working well. 
we didn't have other models that were very well elaborated, didn't seem very plausible. And so we were very excited when a book by Alec Nove called The Economics of Feasible Socialism was published. So Alec Nove was a very respected economic historian. He'd been an economic historian of the Soviet Union. He was a member of the Communist Party in, in Scotland. And so this looked like it was going to be a very sympathetic portrayal of how do you design socialism. And it was one of the most depressing books that one could read if that was your goal. Because here we had this person who was as sympathetic to feasible socialism as possible. And he pointed out that the planned economy has failed. Uh, the Soviet Union, he said, would have collapsed many decades before if it wasn't for the black market. This is quite a well-known point. Um, he claimed that the Soviet Union, Russia in particular, was very bad at producing warm winter tights for women and was very good at producing cheap vodka. So he had an oversupply of cheap vodka, undersupply of women's tights. Now, I didn't know whether this was true or not, but I gave a lecture this year where I work now, the Blavatnik School, and we have a very international group. And after the lecture, a Ukrainian and a Georgian student came up to me and told me that their mothers still both hoard tights. <laughs> now, and that one of them, whenever she goes abroad, can't stop herself buying tights coming back. Because after all, you've got tights now, but who knows what's going to happen. Right? <laughs> so, um, so that does seem to be true, that year after year after year, the Soviet Union just did not produce enough tights. Well, what would have happened if Hayek had got his way and this was a capitalist society rather than a planned economy? Well, someone would have noticed that these women were getting on planes to fly to other cities to try to buy tights. I thought, well, there's money to be made in tights. I will turn my vodka factory into a tight factory. And I will borrow some money from someone to do this, but I'll be able to make a lot of money and I will make a killing. What would happen? Maybe a thousand people will have the same idea at the same time. Five of them will be successful. But the price will come down and the quality will go up in the meantime. So what happens actually is capitalism chews up capitalists. They're all selfishly seeking that profit, but most of them will lose out. But the ones that succeed will bring the price down and will uh, provide supply. So Alec Nove says Hayek was right. We need markets and we need the profit motive, at least within limits, because the market signals information. The market isn't just this passive thing. Um, it is a very active device. It's an epistemological device for giving knowledge throughout the economy. Without that, you, uh, you don't know what's going on elsewhere. No planner can know enough to understand the economy as a whole. And the planner, as we saw in the Soviet Union, doesn't have the incentive to respond to these price signals. The capitalist does. So what is the economics of feasible socialism? In 1983... You get to the end of the book and you read that Yugoslavia is the future. Um, that Yugoslavia had market socialism and that this was the way in which we could reform the world. 1991, second edition, the economics of feasible socialism revisited. That chapter didn't look so clever then. And uh, Yugoslavia was no longer the model of how to run a socialist economy. And part of the problem, actually, was has been very well known, it's um, if you have small-scale enterprises, as you had in Yugoslavia, that don't become forms of full capitalism, then you run into a couple of problems that Robert Nozick 
pointed out in a paragraph or two in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, written in 1971. And what he says is, imagine you've got a small, you've got a collective company now. Um, it's not that everything is owned by the state. Everything is owned by cooperatives. What will happen? Well, the motivation of everyone who's in that cooperative will be to maximize profit per member rather than total profit. Therefore, they have no real incentive to expand and they have no long-term time horizon because people in power probably will be a few years away from retiring or leaving and they want to take, take their profit now. So these small cooperatives tend to stay small with a limited time horizon. There are solutions to this. One is you can give people a saleable share so they have a longer time horizon. And the other is to allow employees who are not shareholders. What have you done there? You've turned it into capitalism once you've done that. So even these cooperatives look very inefficient. Now, we, we could maybe talk about that. What are, what are the other alternatives? Uh, I'll just run through very quickly here now because I'm running short of time. Engels, uh, later in his career, talked about capitalism turning itself into communism. And this is fascinating. So he made a number of points, so I'm just going to pick out two. One is, he said that people say that communism is not practical because the bureaucrat, not being a shareholder, will have no incentive to make good business decisions. That if you're not gaining profit yourself, then you would not make, you know, you'd not pursue risk, you'd not pursue opportunity, you'd just go for a safe life. Well, Engel says, think of the modern, what he calls a joint stock company, i.e. the company that is owned by many millions of shareholders. In fact, you know, some companies now are owned by hundreds of millions of shareholders through pension schemes. What Engel says is the joint, what the joint stock company does is divorce ownership and management. And that's all that socialism is asking of us. If we can do it through the joint stock company, we can do it through socialist ownership. Fascinating observation. may not be right, but it, but it is something to think about. And the other thing he says, which is really interesting is that you know, we talk about capitalism and capitalist competition. Capitalists pretend they like to be in competition. That's what they say when they go on television. It keeps them lean and fit. In fact, capitalists hate competition. What they want is a monopoly. And what we see in the natural development of capitalism is monopolies forming. And you know, Marxists have used this term late capitalism for when capitalist competition turns into monopolies in all sorts of different sectors. And Engels saw this coming, and he said correctly, no civilized society can tolerate a monopoly in an important industry. Because if you're a monopoly in an important industry, you can name your own price, pretty much. So no company, no country will tolerate monopoly. Here's his mistake. He thought every country had no alternative but to nationalize monopolies when they get to their monopoly. And again, you see, if he's right about that, you've got capitalism turning itself into socialism. Competition gives rise to monopoly. Monopoly gives rise to nationalization. There we've got one of the key planks of socialism. What Engels didn't anticipate is the different solutions different countries have come up, to, up with. So in the US, in the past, for oil or telecoms, monopolies have just been broken up. So when monopolies form, they're regulated again out of existence. And what we've done in this country, and it doesn't seem to be too bad, is to have uh, monopolies that are not allowed to set their own prices. 
So in energy or water, for example, you have a regulator that sits on top of a monopoly. So there are other ways of dealing with monopolies other than nationalisation. So, so Engels did not consider that as possibilities. Now we could regulate capitalism in various ways. Um, we could try to reduce salaries. Um, these are going to be very problematic. Um, what is so characteristic of modern capitalism is how mobile capital is. And so if we start to regulate in this country, increase taxes, uh, regulate what businesses can do, a lot of um, money will just move out of the country. And as a way of trying to make this point, I don't know how many of you uh, religiously read through the Sunday Times Rich List, but uh, for purposes of the research for this paper, I steel myself to read through the top 25. And it's very interesting to see who is in the top 25 of Britain's Rich List. There are only five people out of the 25 who were born in the UK and make their money in the UK. There's Norway's richest man. There are very wealthy Indians, very wealthy Americans who have come here and they run their businesses mostly in other countries. Why are they here? Well, you know, they like living in this country, but at the moment there are favorable terms of business for them. And that if those terms change... Many of those people could go, maybe you don't mind that too much, but they might take a lot of other things with them when they do go. So this is part of the problem we've got now, that capitalism has become so international that it's very difficult to regulate just within one country. So what is to be done? Where can we go from here? Well, for inspiration, I went back to Ralph's lectures because I saw lecture number 12 was called Conclusion. So I thought, <laughs> what do we get? And if I was a user of PowerPoints, I would have put the lecture up on, on there because what it says, sadly, is this lecture has not yet been written <laughs> um, and will probably not be produced till the end of November 2014, but as soon as it's written, it will be posted on the, on the website. So we don't know what Ralph would have concluded about capitalism. So I turn to another source, my colleague at the Blavatnik School, Paul Collier, who recently wrote an article exactly on this topic. And his view is that there are no new big ideas. Uh, There are small things we can do. He seems to want to reintroduce something like the distinction between earned and unearned income, difference between productive capital and rent-seeking capital and tax one higher than another, and tweak about with that, do some things for minimum wage, But he says, here we are with capitalism, and all we can really do is try to refine it to make it more humane. So I think that is probably where we are at the moment. But um, I don't have a big idea for you, but I think there are a couple of what we could call medium-sized ideas that we can play with. So I I would just leave leave you with these last two things, uh, the medium-sized idea. So one of them comes from work I've done on the market and on risk analysis, and it's a very simple notion. And it was inspired by a paper I read by two Norwegian philosophers of risk, uh, Hansen and Hermansen, who pointed out that where there is a decision made under conditions of risk, in almost all cases, there are three roles that we need to consider in that case. 
One is the person who makes the decision. One is the person who will benefit if things go well. And one is the person who will be harmed if it goes badly. Now, the morally simple case is where the same person plays those three roles. Okay? So you've got someone making the decision. If it goes well, they'll benefit. If it goes badly, they'll lose. So maybe gambling might be an example of that, although obviously as soon as I say that, you realize there are other complications to this too. Um, but there is that what they call the risk triangle with the decision maker at the top and benefit there and loss there. And it turns out, once you analyze it, there are only a very small number of pure situations we can be in. So there's one where one person plays all three roles. There's another where different people play the three roles. And then there are just three where you've got two, one person playing two roles and one person playing one role. So we've actually got quite an interesting analytical device here to think about different situations of risk. Now, under capitalism, most decisions are decisions under risk. You don't really know what's going to happen, particularly in financial markets, but even in ordinary commercial markets, because someone has got to decide whether they're going to buy stock or not. They're going to decide, have to decide whether to open the shop today or not. So many decisions are made, and there's no certainty to the outcome. Okay, so the reason I'm saying this is that there is one structure which is incredibly problematic in this. And you may well be ahead of me in this. So the problematic structure is where one person makes a decision and they will get the benefit if it goes well, but someone else will pay the price if it goes badly. So in economics, this is known as moral hazard because you have too much incentive to take risks. You're taking risks where you will not face the problem. And most of the difficulties we see with capitalism have that structure. We have people taking decisions about risk where they will benefit... They might lose a bit, but they don't lose proportionally to their benefits. And other people will lose a lot more and benefit either not at all or only to a small degree. So I think when we're thinking of regulating capitalism, we can talk about minimum wage. That's a good thing. We could talk about maximum wage. Good luck with that. Um, because there are so many sources of income and regulating the different sources seems to me to be a complete nightmare and non-starter, really. We can have very heavy progressive tax rates. But the real damage, I think, is being done by people taking decisions that shift the risk onto others. So that is the area we should be looking at, and those are the structures we should be trying to eliminate when we can through regulation. So that's one medium-sized idea. The other medium-sized idea goes back to the 19th century, even before Marx, to John Stuart Mill, and Marx as well, really, who says that what we should do is judge social systems not just on what they achieve, but what types of human characters they encourage to develop and thrive. And this is where I think Bannon's comments about the different types of capitalism are really quite insightful and helpful. Because we have developed forms of capitalism which encourages some very unpleasant types of capitalism to thrive, to, uh, character to thrive and be rewarded. But we know, and we know from people like Ralph, that there are other types of people who can be capitalists as well. There are other types of more virtuous characters, more considerate and thoughtful people who can run businesses. And we need to think about the structures that will encourage some types of people to thrive under capitalism and other people not to thrive so well. 
So it's an extremely programmatic idea. I can't at this moment tell you how we do it, but I think it's quite a useful ideal to hold in mind when we're thinking of the types of capitalist structures we want to encourage and those that we don't want to encourage. So thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, for talking us through that in such a lucid way. Uh, We have almost exactly 15 minutes for questions, so if you would like to uh, ask a question, please raise your hand and the microphone uh, will come to you. There's a gentleman in the second row. My question is about the competition in market, which you mentioned that is one of the main elements in capitalism, free market and competition. So if there is a genuine competition, not the fake one, if there is a genuine competition, don't you think that would kill the capitalism? It's like a Hegelian dialectic, if you want. Because the thing is that there is a competition. Big businesses always can run over the small businesses, and there is a still market in the hand of few big businesses. They can afford, but the small businesses can't afford. Then as a result, there is no free competition. So I'm I'm sorry, I didn't hear every word you said there, so I might not have got the question quite right. But but so shake your head if this is not your question, okay? Um, So so you were suggesting that um, competition can act, I think you said, what, as a Hegelian dialectic, um, or at least it can act as a Darwinian dialectic, uh, in that it will... um, encourage those who obviously are capable of competing. Uh, You think that's likely to favor large businesses over small businesses? Uh, What what I didn't grasp, so all of that is true, but I I didn't grasp whether you thought that was a good thing or a bad thing or where it was going to lead. It's a very bad thing that big businesses beat up. Right, okay. Okay, good. So so this is really Marx's point, that... um, well, if, if you combine Smith and Marx here. So th- there are definitely benefits from competition. And anyone who's been in business... So you know, if, if you're in business and you get this market niche and it's fantastic and, you're, and the money is rolling in, someone else will find the same thing unless you've got a patent. Someone else will produce it. They'll find a way of doing it more cheaply. Can you stay in business? Yes, but you might have to reduce your profits, reduce your price, find a way of improving the product, and that is very good for the consumer, uh, but some people will be put out of business. Now, um, that is how capitalism functions, and Marx thought that this will typically get to a point where there's only one business left through merger, acquisition, competition. That, at that point, we get monopoly. That is really bad. Well, Engels thought it's good and bad because that's when the government has to step in and nationalize at that point, right? Um, so I think what you're really pointing out is that for people who think capitalism, that competition is a natural part of capitalist functioning, they're right to a degree, but they're not right systematically. Because what we find is we need competition authorities to make competition work. And the government's put a lot of effort into making sure that sectors of the economy have to remain competitive. And that is not a natural part of capitalism at all. That is sort of planned capitalism in order to make sure we get those benefits. 
And like you, I think I feel very sorry for the people who are put out of business this way. Um, and you know, th- this is why you know, we need a welfare state, why we need bankruptcy laws. So, so if you lose your business, you don't lose everything in life, although that you know, does become difficult for people. So I think you and Marx are probably agreeing here. Uh, there's a gentleman uh, right at the back. Yep. Quite gratified to hear you touch on at least three potential alternatives to capitalism, mm-hmm. um, one of them being Novian uh, feasible socialism. I only read the second edition of his right. book. I hadn't remembered him pressing on or leaning on Yugoslavia quite so vigorously there. I came away with the impression that he was thinking of a sort of turbocharged social democracy. So it's sort of arguable whether yeah. that really yeah. constitutes a true alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding Yugoslavia itself, um, that's quite an interesting case. Obviously, a lot could be said about that. Um, my understanding, I don't know whether this was an intended implication, but based on what you were saying, I felt that perhaps people might come away with the impression that it was for economic reasons that Yugoslavia dissolved or ceased to be a going concern, but it was, as I recall, really more of a mobilization or a cultivation of inter-ethnic and inter-republican animosity by Mm -hmm. a coalition of Serbian nationalist politicians rather than an economic issue. I believe Yugoslavia's GDP per capita actually grew by about, I believe, 4.5%, according to the Angus Madison data set over its entire lifetime, 1940. If you could come to a question. Certainly, yes. So moving on from the Yugoslav question, you only touched on the third alternative very, very briefly, which is a sort of economic democracy based on cooperatives and neither government nor um, private corporate ownership of the means of production. And I was wondering whether you could say more about the sort of economic democracy proposed by e.g. John E. Roma or Charles David Schweikart, for instance, because yeah, yeah. you, you okay. touched on that very briefly just to mention a Nozickian rebuttal, but of course, as Jerry Cohen and others have shown, just because Nozick makes a claim obviously does not necessarily mean it's true. And I right. was wondering, do you have anything more to say about... Yeah. Although more people are inclined to the opposite view, that if Nozick says it, it's definitely false, <laughs> uh, which, which is not a view I share either. Okay, so, so let me talk briefly about this. So, um, so the... Um, Yugoslavia case now clearly you know about this uh, and it sounds like you know much more than me about it Um, you're right I I wasn't suggesting it I shouldn't have suggested if I did that was a mistake that it collapsed for economic reasons Um, however and and you may know whether this is right or wrong there is a view that, that Yugoslavia only survived because so much American money was being pushed into it because it was being held up as a type of beacon of western values against the Soviet Union. And so there, there's a thought that it was, it was part of the Cold War, and so it was always a fake economy, even if GDP was going up. Now, that may be scandalously wrong, but certainly that story is there. I mean, in, so the Roma stuff, I mean, I, I, think, I think there are aspects of Roma, so the, what is it, the, prag, the primer for the egalitarian planner. So, so some of that, I think, is a model that may well work. Um, I think the problem with it is that it doesn't have a theory of transition from here to there. And that you know, we, you know, we are where we are, and, and we need to make changes from where we're going. And you know, to be, with all, John respect, with, with all respect to John Roma, who's someone I know and admire, you know, I don't think that the workers are going to go on the barricades with the 
what is it, the pragmatic primer for the egalitarian planet on their banners to bring about the revolution. So, we, so I think it needs a type of disjunction from ordinary politics that can only be carried out by revolution and it wouldn't motivate a revolution. So we need something else. And I'm actually not sure how much of an improvement on forms of capitalism it would be if, if we could have something closer to a mixed economy. So you're right about the sort of turbocharged social democracy in Nove. Uh, he did change his view from the first to the second uh, book. That in, in the first book, he was talking much more about market socialism. I, I read uh, that he changed his view to socialism with markets rather than market socialism, which is quite a subtlety, and it's meant to be distinct from the mixed economy, which is a subtlety I haven't quite got to yet. So I agree, there are other models out there. Uh, I w- would say they're not very inspiring, though. Um, and, and they return us to a type of mixed economy that we have seen and we've moved away from, which I would like to go back to to some degree, and maybe the Labour manifesto is, is planning to do that. Anyway. Let's take another question. Uh, yeah, there's a lady uh, right at the back on the other side, yeah, in black. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what Marx meant by a state-owned bank and what the context was then. And given that, what the sort of the extent to which that is now addressed by, for example, mainstream commercial banks going to great lengths to justify their profits by showing how they're linked to some kind of social good yeah. and other examples. Yeah. Um, so in the writings of Marx, I know, and of course, for anyone, it's only a tip of the iceberg because there's so much there. But in the writings, I know he wasn't very explicit about it. Um, he thought it was obvious, I think, that a socialist society couldn't allow private banks and that um, you know, the type of profiteering that you get from private banks, you know, the MM cycle, where, you know, which exists by exploiting individuals, that, that couldn't function. And so what you would have would be a single bank that had a monopoly of credit. It would be the only uh, entity in society that is allowed to lend, um, and he didn't say who would be borrowing from it, but that might go to one of these sort of worker cooperative models, which, which he didn't explain. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, if Marx was present in this room, no doubt he would have been shaking his head through quite a lot of what I said. He would have been laughing at quite a lot of what I said. And I think he might have reserved his largest laugh for the idea that contemporary banks are in some way carrying out a Marxist function here. Um, of course, they talk about social responsibility, but um, you know, it's talk, primarily. Uh, you know, I, I don't... Uh, agree with all of the banker bashing that we see. I think you know, the banks have a genuine and legitimate role, but you know, they've exceeded, or many of them have exceeded that. So, uh, yeah, um, the banks we have, maybe the cooperative bank might be something, you know, you know, one model, but even then, I think it probably hasn't gone very far. Yeah, let's uh, take another question. Yeah, there's a lady, yeah. So, <clears throat> on your second point, um, second medium idea, right. uh, you mentioned the type of character that mm. the system would, would produce. Um, <clears throat> it has been discussed on the universal basic income that mm-hmm. it made um, humans more altruist and more keen to cooperate. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, universal basic income is a fantastic thing to, th- to think about. Um, Fifteen years ago, I was quite a passionate defender of unconditional basic income. The more fashionable it has got, 
the less appealing I've found it. Um, so this might say something about me rather than universal basic income. Um, what wor- so what, what, what I always liked about the idea of universal basic income was the administrative advantages because it just takes out a whole range of people who are weighing, checking, measuring people to see if they are entitled to their claims or not. And so if you could do that, you know, I would be, you know, if, if we really got rid of that type of intervention and intrusion into people's lives, I, you know, that would just be fantastic, I think, and I would put up with lots of other problems with it. But the trouble is you can't, you know, no basic income is going to be high enough to meet the needs of people with very high dependency needs, for example. So we're still going to need to have means, te- not means testing, but capacity testing and some of the things that I was hoping it would get rid of. Um, the argument, I think, that, that has made me a bit more concerned is that when I was a supporter of unconditional basic income, I tended to think of social policy in terms of tax and transfer, and that you you have rich people that you tax and transfer that money to other people. Since then, I've done a lot of work on disability, and when you think about social policy in relation to disability, of course there is tax and transfer, but much of what we do is change building codes, try to change cultural understandings, to have collective solutions or structural solutions which can cost a lot of money and UBI is very individualistic, it's about giving money to individuals rather than having these more holistic and collective and structural changes so I think, now ideally you'd do both right? ideally you'd do the structural change and you'd give people more money and if we could do that fantastic, the chances are we can't do that and so it seems to me quite likely that if we start putting money into unconditional basic income then we will drain collective and communal provision, which I think can be more important for some people in some circumstances. So that's what makes me a bit worried about it. And my colleague, Boo Rothstein, gave a talk just last week under the title Universal Basic Income, an Irresponsible Idea. So I was quite intrigued by this because I know there are bad ideas, but why is it an irresponsible idea? Because it makes it sound like it's going to be corrupting. And here, you know, what's very interesting about it is the idea, so if, suppose everyone got the universal basic income. So you got this grant from the government, £100 a week, £200 a week, or whatever, whether or not you work. What is that going to do to incentives to work? So this is an old argument, and a lot of people have said people give up work if they have this money, and then there are empirical studies that say, no, they don't. And for myself, I think most of the people I know who work would not give up work just because they had £100 or £200 a week. Because most people get their sense of meaning from work. They prefer, and there's quite interesting work on how people now are preferring to go into work than even working at home. Because it, you know, work is where you have social connections with other people, you hear the gossip, you know, that's what makes you a human being, to be connected with other people. So I don't believe that UBI would be a disincentive to people who have jobs. But there is a wave of criticism saying Will it be a disincentive to people coming onto the labour market not to go into the labour market? And so it's like, so, you know, you probably have people you knew. I had, had people I, you know, I, I know vaguely who got you know, just the wrong size inheritance at the wrong time. Right? Uh, so if you get a really big inheritance, that's great. If you can get a token inheritance, that's okay. You go out and buy a coat and have a holiday. Um, but if you have an inheritance which means... You don't really have to work. A lot of people don't work. 
I'm mean, not everyone. Um, so what really worries me, so this is why it could be an irresponsible idea, not just a bad idea, because it could sort of corrupt the work ethic of a rising generation, and then if it collapses after a few years because not enough people, then you will have a problem you need to deal with. Now, that may be wrong. It's an empirical claim. I think it needs further investigation. But I just saw yesterday someone crowing about a study that says there's a study in Iran where apparently there's been something like a universal basic income. And it says that, so people are saying, look, this study shows it doesn't take away people's incentives to work. People don't defect from the workplace. And so this was being repeated and repeated. And I looked at the abstracts and it said uh, it doesn't destroy people's you know, willingness to go to work, except for juveniles. So, uh, and I thought, well, why are we not talking about the juveniles? Now, now, why aren't we talking about people coming into the workplace? So that, so that is a worry. So maybe you shouldn't get unconditional basic income until you're 30. Maybe even then there'll be a secondary market and you can borrow against it and so on. So, um, you know, because capitalists are quite clever. That's particularly when they want to lend you money at high rates of interest. Um, so I, the, the jury is out for me. I, I think it's largely an empirical question, which wouldn't be too much of a problem if it didn't bring about irreversible change. And I'm slightly worried that it could bring about some irreversible changes. Well, as a responsible chair, I'm afraid I have to draw our discussion to a close now. I'm sure we could go on. It just remains to thank Professor Wolf for a fascinating, fantastic...